The title of this first session is The Gospel of the Kingdom. And the subtitle that I've given it is Reclaiming the Eschatology, the Message, and the Mission of the Early Church. Eschatology, of course, is the study of ultimate things. It's the study of the last days. It's the study of the return of Jesus and the kingdom to come. It's the study of personal eschatology, what takes place at death, as well as the, the ultimate destiny of the church and the world in the, in the age to come. So we're going to look at all of these things. I want to begin by just reading a few relevant uh, verses. The first verse is Matthew 4, verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Again, this was not just a generic gospel. It was not just a generic good news. It was specifically the good news concerning the kingdom. And he was healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. Second Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Again, in the context of the last days, it is the gospel specifically, the good news of the kingdom, the message concerning the kingdom that Jesus said would be preached in all the world as a witness. So the purpose of this session first is to identify what the Bible means when it says the gospel of the kingdom. And when Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, we want to identify that gospel of the kingdom, that which was proclaimed by Jesus and the disciples and the early church. Second, we want to identify and purge the modern gospel of any influence or corruption from the influence of Greek philosophy. It was the Greek philosophical worldview that was really the primary source of corruption and heresy in the early centuries of the church. And these uh, Greek philosophical ideas significantly crept into the church, and in many ways they've remained with us uh, to this day. Thirdly, we want to highlight the importance of embracing a proper biblical eschatology particularly with regard to the world missions movement. It's essential that we determine our eschatology. If we want to be missionaries, it is essential that we get in our eschatology down. And fourth, we want to articulate the biblical alternative to the Islamic vision of a caliphate. The Islamic caliphate, the Islamic government, essentially the Islamic eschatology, their vision of the Islamic kingdom, if you will, we want to articulate the biblical alternative to the Islamic vision. Okay, why does our eschatology matter? As evangelists, as missionaries, as those who are out to preach the gospel to Muslims, why is it essential that we get our eschatology down? Why does our eschatology matter? First of all, our worldview will determine our eschatology. We're going to unpack that a bit. And secondly, our eschatology specifically will determine our gospel, our primary life message as well as our mission. The gospel is simply the, the message that we're articulating verbally, that we're speaking, and then our life is the gospel that we're proclaiming with our actions and so forth. That's our mission. So let's unpack that a little bit, and we're going to unpack it some more as we uh, move on. So our worldview, and when I say worldview, I mean a metaphysical worldview. What we believe specifically with regard to the totality of everything, of all of God's creation, the nature of God's creation, what we believe about these things will specifically determine our eschatology 
And then our eschatology will directly affect and determine our gospel message. So in simple uh, terms, what that means is what we believe about the future, what we believe about our own individual destiny and the destiny of the church and the future of this world will specifically determine our gospel message. So Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but unto what? What is the good news that we're proclaiming? This is essential that we get this down if we are uh, moving toward or want to become an evangelist or a missionary. So, an unbiblical worldview will always result in an unbiblical gospel and mission. And much of the church today and down through history and I understand this is a strong statement to make, but has held to an unbiblical or a partial uh, gospel. They have held to an unbiblical eschatology, and as a result, to a degree, they have preached an unbiblical or an incomplete gospel. So, we're going to unpack this a bit now. Embracing a biblical worldview, and we begin at the beginning. We begin with Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is the totality of all things. God says, between the heavens and the earth, you have all of his creation. What is it that we believe regarding these things? So what we have is we have two opposing worldviews. We have a Hebrew or a biblical worldview, and this is a holistic worldview. It views all of God's creation in a holistic manner. And this is, to be, uh, this is opposed to a Greek or a Platonic, or a Greek philosophical, or a Gnostic worldview. And the Greek philosophical worldview is dualistic. There is a harsh dualism to the Greek philosophical worldview. And again, we're going to explain what we mean by that. So first, the Platonic, or the Gnostic uh, worldview, holds, uh, sees the nature of, of all things uh, as such. You have the heavenly realm, which is the spiritual realm. And when I say spiritual, it's immaterial. This is according to the Greek worldview. So thus the the classic idea of the ghost. You know, you can pass your hand through it. It's immaterial. In the spiritual realm, all things are immaterial and it is essentially good. And then you have, again, this harsh dualism and below you have the earthly realm. That's the physical, the material, the bodily realm. And that's essentially bad. It's essentially corrupt. Now, then you have the Hebrew or the biblical worldview. And the biblical worldview is simply this. You have the heavens above, and those are good. And then you have the earth below. That's also good. All things were created by God. Both heaven and earth are both good. The the Hebrew, the biblical worldview, holds that the eternal purpose and plan of God is that the heavens or the heavenly realm, which is spiritual and physical, that's above, And then below, you have the earthly realm, which is both spiritual and physical, and that's lower. So you simply have two realms of existence. You have the heavens, which are above, and that is other than. It's other than the earthly realm, but it's above. And then you have the earthly realm, which is simply the the plane that we're used to, uh, you know, living on and dwelling on. But these things are not in conflict. You don't have one that is good and one that is bad. They're both good. And the eternal purpose and plan of God from a biblical perspective is that he would reconcile heaven and earth and he would bring them together as one under his headship. God will be faithful to his creation. He will redeem, he will restore, and he will heal his entire creation. Again, he will make heaven and earth the two into one under his headship. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Again, so all things, both those which are in heaven and those which are in earth, in Christ. And then you have Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. For it pleased the Father that in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Paul himself specifically warned against a Greek philosophical worldview. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul said, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Again, Greek philosophical worldview. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of this world, not according to Christ. And then he throws this in. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. The point being that God Himself stepped down out of the heavenly realm and dwelt on earth. Now the mystery of the incarnation from a Greek philosophical worldview is that the spiritual took on the flesh. That is not the mystery of the incarnation. The mystery of the incarnation is that God, who is the creator of all things, the God of the universe, condescended. It is that the almighty, transcendent God He actually lowered himself, he humbled himself, he made himself into the form of a servant. He made himself a servant of us all because he loved us, even embracing death on a cross. The mystery of the incarnation is that God stepped down out of the heavenly realm and and entered into the lower realms because he loves us. The mystery of the incarnation is not because, you know, spirit took on flesh. That is a false Greek philosophical uh, sort of interpretation of the biblical doctrine of the incarnation. So in Hebrew or biblical thought, salvation affects our whole being. So according to biblical thought, Jesus came not just to save our spirit or our soul, but he actually came to save our bodies as well. Both the earth, that's again the the physical realm, as well as the heavenly realm, he came to save and redeem and restore all of these things. Now presently we possess the Holy Spirit, which is a deposit. It's a down payment or a guarantee of our salvation, of the resurrection of our body at the day of the Lord, at the day of resurrection. But again, our body, our soul, and our spirits will be saved, will be healed, will be redeemed, and glorified on the day of the Lord, or the day of resurrection. Biblical salvation, again, entails body, soul, and spirit. Romans 8, verses 23 through 24. Paul said, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, again, this deposit of the Holy Spirit in us, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption. We are now in the process of waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The resurrection of the body is the most consistent message throughout the New Testament of Jesus, the apostles. It is the day that it is the hope of the church. It is the day that we are all waiting for when we will receive our adoption as sons fully and the full, complete redemption of our body. Now, the Greek philosophical or the dualistic worldview says this. Salvation is the liberation of the spirit or the soul from the body. So it's, it's the day when the spirit or the immaterial 
uh, will escape from this rotting corpse, this shell. This, this body is essentially a mere shell. And salvation is when we can escape the shell and attain to this state of, uh, of the spirit. There is no literal physical resurrection. So the Gnostic Gospel says that the eternal purpose and plan of God is to rescue us from the wicked and fallen earth and take us to the spiritual realm, take us to heaven forever. Now, some of you will be familiar or remember the Heaven's Gate cult. This was an American cult, a UFO cult, that embraced a Greek philosophical worldview. And this is probably 20 years or so uh, back now. And what these individuals did is, uh, at the beck and call of their, of their leader, their cult leader, they took cyanide lace jello shots, and they took the, uh, the jello shots, they put plastic bags over the heads, and they all committed suicide. And in the writings that they left behind, they explained that by doing this, they were attaining salvation. They believed that they were escaping these bodies, and they were attaining salvation. They were now free to be spirits. This is the result of embracing a false Greek philosophical worldview and the false Greek philosophical concept of salvation. Now, here's my question that I want to throw out. Do most churches today, most churches prepare believers for the coming physical kingdom of God on the earth? Are most churches, are the gospels that we hear preached from the pulpits most often preparing us for the age to come when we will have physical, literal bodies living under the headship of Christ here on the earth? Or are they primarily preparing people to escape this world and go to heaven forever in an immaterial state, in a floaty, cloudy place? And you know, you've all heard the... uh, the, uh, the, the little guilt trip, you know, well, if you didn't like worship this week, you better get used to it because you're going to do it in heaven forever. You know, we, we've all heard these type of things. This is essentially the, the result of the Greek philosophical worldview as it's crept into the gospel. Now, for clarity, if we're to die today, yes, we will be with Christ in heaven, but heaven is a temporary realm. Heaven is not our eternal destiny. Our eternal destiny is heaven and earth together. Heaven and earth together with physical resurrected bodies. Um, I'm the son of a fisherman. And I tell my dad, I say, Dad, in the kingdom to come, in the age to come, in heaven, according to the biblical definition, we don't just go and float around on the clouds in this nebulous state. I say, Dad, you get to go fishing. And he gets excited. This resonates with people. When I say to people, you know, how many want to be part of the garden planning committee in the kingdom in the age to come? And they get excited. I say, you get to quit your job. You don't have to uh, work for some narcissist anymore, some egomaniac. You get to be part of rebuilding the earth under the leadership of Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. That resonates with people because we were created by God to have a body, to dwell in a body, to dwell on the earth. Again, as it was in the garden, with God dwelling among man, together creating and growing and jobs and all sorts of the things that take place on the earth, this is what will take place in the kingdom. So now interpreting biblical prophecy, we're moving into the realm of eschatology and how these things all tie together. There are really two primary approaches. You have the first approach, which is called preterism. Now, preterism essentially holds that biblical prophecy or the overarching majority of biblical prophecy is all history. And preterism stands in contrast to the other position, which is called futurism. 
And futurism essentially holds this, that the ultimate emphasis, that the primary burden of all of the prophets is the day of the Lord. The primary pole star of expectation and hope that all of the prophets, that Jesus, that the apostles, that they're all pointing to is the future day of the Lord. We have not experienced it yet. And so the biblical prophets, while they were speaking to the immediate circumstances of their day or the near circumstances of their day, they were ultimately prophesying through those events, pointing to the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the resurrection of the body, and the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth. So futurism holds that the ultimate burden of biblical prophecy is the day of the Lord, the yet future day of the Lord. Again, preterism holds that biblical prophecy is largely history, much of it having been fulfilled in 70 AD with the events of the uh, Roman invasion of Jerusalem and the destruction of the city and the temple under Titus, under Emperor Domitian. Uh, Preterists hold that much of the uh, message of Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation, that these things are all now past. They are history. And we're going to unpack these things a bit more. Now, we have three views on the millennium, three views on the kingdom. What is the kingdom? And so under the preterist camp, you have really two views. You have amillennialism, and then you have postmillennialism. And then from the futurist perspective, you have premillennialism. And these three are really the, the, the three positions that dominate the, the belief system of the church. Again, amillennialists and postmillennialists largely hold to the idea that biblical prophecy is past. And then the premillennial perspective holds that the burden of the prophets, the apostles, it's all pointing to the future day of the Lord. We're going to unpack these things uh, significantly. So amillennialism essentially holds this. Now, it's important to take note. Amillennialism has been the predominant eschatology of the church down through history. This has been the most widely held view down through history, again, through the Catholic Church and, uh, and largely even up uh, to, to, till today. So you begin with the cross. Jesus came, he died on the cross, and then we are in the kingdom. We, the kingdom is now. This is amillennialism, essentially holds that when the Bible talks about a future reign of Christ on the earth, that these things are... Uh, to be taken allegorically. They are speaking figuratively of the age of the church, that we are in the kingdom now, and then comes the final judgment, and we enter into eternity. That is the amillennial perspective. Now, the goals of amillennialism is to argue that the kingdom of God, again, is essentially spiritual and not physical. So when you look at the prophets and they speak of all of these very real, tangible Uh, realities under the headship of Messiah, those things are all to be interpreted allegorically or spiritually that the kingdom of God is not a literal kingdom on the earth. And this is dualism. This is Greek philosophical dualism. This This is not a holistic Hebraic worldview which says there will be a literal physical return of Christ and a literal physical resurrection of the body. It holds that um, that are born again at the, at the uh, episode of being born again, that we have essentially been resurrected, that the resurrection has al- already taken place. Secondly, the goal of amillennialism is to argue that the church has replaced Israel. The church is spiritually represents the kingdom of God here and now. There is no literal future kingdom wherein Jesus will rule the world from Jerusalem. This is supersessionism or replacement theology. 
the mission of the amillennialist, again, a, a very dualistic mission. You have the earthly mission, and then you have the spiritual or the heavenly mission. The earthly mission is to make this world a better place. So the mission of the amillennialist is to try to do good things, to be a good Christian, to make the world a better place through godly principles. Uh, and there's no real basis for honoring creation because ultimately creation will be destroyed and we enter into the eternal realm. But these things will pass away. So we can preserve it for now, but ultimately this is a sinking ship. And then you have the spiritual mission, which is to save the human soul in order that it can go to heaven forever in order that we will go to a spiritual heaven forever. So you see the dualism? Earth is a temporary realm of existence. The earth is eventually destroyed, and heaven is our eternal home. Again, this is what takes place when you allow a Greek or Gnostic or dualistic worldview to come into and intermingle and mix with the biblical gospel. It is not a biblical message. It's not a biblical gospel. It is not what the Bible teaches. Now we're going to look at post-millennialism, now, I call postmillennialism mitigated amillennialism. Postmillennialists have tried to take away some of the obvious problems with amillennialism, and what they've created, which another word for it is optimistic amillennialism. And so, postmillennialism essentially holds that uh, after the cross, after Jesus died and, and ascended to heaven, that the church went from persecution and is gradually moving to dominionism gradually moving from persecution to dominance over the earth. And it is the duty of the church, literally, to take over and Christianize the earth in every realm and every sphere of existence. And one of the popular teachings that's it's been very popular, particularly in the charismatic movement, is what's called the Seven Mountains uh, teaching or the Seven Mountains doctrine, which holds that there are seven spheres of influence in the earth. It goes down from... Uh, education and entertainment and you know family all of these different mountains and it says that the church must conquer each one of these in succession the economic until eventually we have literally christianized the whole earth again very optimistic vision and eventually we will hand the kingdom over to jesus on a silver platter that it is our job to take over the world not just to preach the gospel but literally to take over the world which eventually results in taking over law, government, and military. Every sphere of influence on the earth, the church Christianizes, takes over, and then we hand the kingdom to Christ. And then he returns and we have the, the millennium. So that's the position of post-millennialism. Other titles are dominionism, Christian reconstructionism, or theonomy. Now, the mission of the post-millennialist, again, is dualistic. You have the earthly mission, which is to take dominion over the earth, to Christianize the earth, and then you have the spiritual mission, which is to save souls in preparation for heaven. Again, it comes fundamentally from a Greek, Gnostic, or dualistic worldview. David Chilton, uh, the uh, deceased David Chilton, well articulates the post-millennial mindset. He says, quote, development of biblical theocratic republics in which every area of life is redeemed and placed under the lordship of Jesus Christ and the rule of God's law. This is the goal of the postmillennialist. He says, as the gospel progresses throughout the world, it will win, win, win until all the kingdoms become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. It's a very appealing message. It's a very positive message, but it holds that the primary burden is on the church to accomplish these things, that we will conquer the world for Christ. 
Now, what is the biggest problem for post-millennialists? Reality. First, we begin with global demographics, and we're just touching on global demographics and trends. Islam is rapidly growing and spreading. It's the fastest-growing religion in the world. Christianity is declining. In the West, 70% of the children in the church, when they become young adults, leave the church. 70% are leaving the church. Uh, recent statistics in the United States and really in the West, uh, Islam will quickly surpass Christianity as the dominant world religion. The West is essentially aborting itself into non-existence. The, the Western world is failing to have the uh, amount of children that is necessary to, to sustain uh, population. Meanwhile, the Islamic world is multiplying rapidly. Again, Islam is quickly growing. Christianity is, by and large, shrinking largely because of birth rates, not because of conversion rates, but because of birth rates. Then you have the unraveling of the global situation. Human trafficking, slavery, are at the highest rates right now in the history of mankind. There are more slaves in the earth now than there have ever been in the history of the world. Global economic meltdown, the absolute meltdown of everything globally, particularly here in the West. Then you have natural disasters. In recent years, we've seen the increase of earthquakes. We've seen record uh, devastating tornadoes here in the United States and in Japan, tsunamis. We've seen the increase of natural disasters. Then we have rogue third world nations with nukes. We have the unraveling of the Middle East, etc., 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 it's nice to have an optimistic worldview, but unfortunately, reality is not submitting to the post-millennialist uh, perspective. Then we move on to premillennialism. Now, premillennialism essentially holds this, and the reason that I want to articulate and argue for premillennialism as the, as the eschatology of the Bible, as the eschatology of the early church, but most specifically as the eschatology of the global missions movement is because it is the only eschatology which provides for us a solid basis to evangelize the world. So after the cross, you have what I call the age of invitation. This is the age that we're in now. You could also call it the age of amnesty. The age that we are in now, first and foremost, is about pointing to and proclaiming the coming day of the Lord and the establishment of the kingdom of Christ on the earth. Everything that we do in this age is about pointing to that day, the day of the Lord. We are also in the age of amnesty. At this present time, the Lord is withholding his judgment. He is extending mercy. He is extending patience to the world, inviting them to, uh, to embrace repentance and to uh, inviting them to accept his mercy so that when they stand before him on the day of the Lord, at the day of judgment, they would be found clean and they would be found righteous before him. He is extending, patiently extending mercy to mankind. But everything that the church does in this age is about pointing to the yet future kingdom of God which has not yet been established on the earth. And then Jesus returns again. You have the pouring out of the, the great tribulation and the, the, the difficulties on the earth before his return. These things take place in order to establish in his people uh, character, long-suffering, patience. It was Jesus himself who embraced suffering and had to pass through suffering before he entered into his glory. And Jesus himself said, No servant is above his master. If they called me Beelzebub, 
How much more will they do these things to, to my servants? And likewise, even as our master had to pass through suffering before he could enter into his glory, likewise, at the end of the age, the Lord will allow his church to be corporately crucified. He will allow his church to go through purging and the tribulation and the persecution of an unbelieving world, and most specifically from the Islamic world, but not just the Islamic world, before we can enter into uh, the kingdom with him. And, and then, then comes the judgment of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom of God, and we get to rule and reign with him. And again, why does he want to purify us? Why does he want to refine us? So that we can stand before him on the day of judgment, clean and holy. We are saved by the blood of, of Jesus. We are saved by the finished work on the cross. However, we will be judged according to the deeds that we have done in this body. That will determine our place in the kingdom, whether we have bleacher seats or whether we're giving charge over 10 cities. The things that we do, the actions that we carry out in this life, the way we behave, the thoughts of our inner heart, these things will determine our role and our place in the kingdom when Jesus is here ruling and reigning. We are in the age of, uh, of the internship. Jesus right now is raising up a millennial leadership uh, movement and he's calling us to be part of his leadership team. And that's what this age is about. We are in the age of invitation, calling all the people of the world to repent because the day of the Lord is coming. That's premillennialism. And then at the end of this thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, you have the final judgment, and then we enter into the eternal state. So, the mission of the premillennialist, again, is to preach the gospel of the kingdom. It is to preach the good news that there is a kingdom that will come on the earth that will crush the corrupt, unrighteous leaders and governmental politicians throughout the earth that are, that are oppressing the poor and exalting themselves and building their own kingdoms for their own glory, for their own self-exaltation at the expense of the oppressed of the earth. He will crush them throughout the earth. He will replace uh, the leaders of the earth with righteous leaders that he's, he's chosen from among his people. And the mission of the premillennialist is to demonstrate with their lives the nature of the coming kingdom. So this is our mission. This is everything that we do as premillennialist is filtered through the lens of pointing to the kingdom. So we pray for the sick. Why do we pray for the sick? So that the Lord would bear witness to the gospel message that we're proclaiming. And then he would heal the sick as a testimony and as a pointer to the nature of the kingdom in the age to come. Because in the kingdom, everyone's getting healed. But see what happens, and often, for instance, in the charismatic churches, we try to take all of the promises of the kingdom and say that they are now. So yes, in the kingdom, everyone gets healed. But when we tell the sick person that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and you are absolutely 100% guaranteed as a result of what he did to be healed now, and then if you don't get healed, then either you don't have enough faith or you have secret sin in your life. And we put sick people through hell, as opposed to saying, sometimes the Lord heals, and sometimes in His sovereignty, He doesn't. And that's up to Him. That's up to His sovereign will. But He heals people in order to bear witness to the reality and the character and the nature of the kingdom that is about to break forth on the earth. Because in that age, everyone gets healed. We minister to the poor and the oppressed. Why? Because we are pointing to the nature and the character of the kingdom of the Messiah that's going to break forth on the earth. Everything that we do, whether by word or deed, is pointing to the coming kingdom. 
And then again, we prepare and we order our lives according to the reality of the coming kingdom. This is personal discipleship. We are preparing ourselves to be part of Jesus' kingdom leadership team. And then again, we disciple others to do the same. So premillennialism versus dominionism, you have individual discipleship. The premillennialist is focused on individual discipleship. We change society one heart at a time. We proclaim the gospel to each individual, proclaiming the message of repentance and the message of the gospel of the good news of the kingdom to come, and one heart at a time we change the world. Dominionism, or post-millennialism, believes in discipling the nations, which means, again, taking over the nations. Premillennialism holds that we pray to change the, the hearts of individuals. Dominionism prays that we would change the spiritual atmosphere over a region. Do you see the difference? We pray, as premillennialists, to undergird the global missions movement to to pray to undergird the going forth of the gospel that hearts would be changed that men would repent from a post-millennial or a dominionist perspective we pray to sort of change the spiritual atmosphere from a premillennial perspective we are focusing on internal changes the dominionist perspective is often focused on the external it's focused on changing laws praying for the next primarily focused on praying for the next election that we could establish righteous laws these things are important but again from a biblical perspective we are first and foremost focused on changing hearts and then praying that righteous individuals would vote for righteous laws we don't just pray that unrighteous men would just for some reason vote for righteous laws again heart change versus legal change and again it is the gospel the missional worldview versus a political mission the dominionist or the post-millennial uh, mission is often very political. The premillennial perspective is purely evangelistic and missional in its perspective and in its mission. Millennialism throughout church history, again, a very broad, a very sweeping overview of the, uh, the, the changes in eschatology down through history in the first century. You had the Jewish position. This was premillennialism. This was clearly far and away when you look at the eschatology of, yes, the apostles in the New Testament, but also the earliest of the church fathers, they were consistently premillennialists. And again, this is because this was the Jewish position, just a very earthly uh, worldview. After the third century, as a result of the Greek philosophical worldview, primarily out of the city of Alexandria, you had... Um, you had various early church fathers that were really making a deliberate effort to intermingle the biblical message with the Greek philosophical worldview and with Neoplatonism. And Alexandria was really a hotbed and the home to a lot of this, this worldview. And then through various church leaders such as Augustine, amillennialism became the dominant eschatology of the church. Again, that is a Gnostic-influenced gospel. And then in the 18th century, you had the various revivalists as well as the theological liberals introduce the concept of postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is very much a modern uh, belief. They tried to sort of, as I said, mitigate some of the problems with amillennialism. It is a relatively modern position. Before the return of Jesus, in the days ahead, the church must return to apostolic premillennialism it is time for the church to get back to the eschatology of the apostles and the early church 
Now, I just want to throw this out. When I find most often as I'm trying to articulate this concept that we are not in the kingdom now, the kingdom is very much a future reality, and everything that we do in this life is pointing to that coming kingdom. The one verse that is almost universally brought up is Luke 17, verses 20 through uh, 22. And uh, I want to just cite these. There's probably about five or six different verses that can come up, but this is really the most common one. Now, for clarity, in the New Testament, you have roughly 150 mentions of the kingdom of God. Roughly 140 of those are clearly, undeniably, no debate, speaking of a future, literal, physical kingdom of God. And then you have about 10, which people have tried to use to say that the kingdom of God is spiritual or the kingdom of God is now. I don't have time to deal with each verse. I want to touch on this one because it's the most essential. Again, Luke 17 beginning with verse 20. This is from the King James. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither, neither will they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So people often say, Well, wait a minute. The Bible says the kingdom of God is within you. Here's the problem. Uh, On this one verse, the King James really has a terrible translation. And when you look at virtually every other uh, Bible translation out there, you'll see that there's a much different meaning. But I find that even these other translations don't fully convey the point that Jesus was making. So now let's look at the same verse from the RSV. I'm just going to jump toward the end of the verse. Um, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, lo, here he is, or there. For behold... The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So essentially what Jesus was doing, what he was talking about, is in the context of the first century, uh, most of the Jews were looking for and awaiting an insurrectionist movement. So Jesus said, look, if you hear news or you hear word that there's a gathering out in the desert, and there's a group of people that are getting ready to take over the kingdom for the Messiah, or there's a secret meeting in the inner rooms, the Messiah is here. He says, pay no attention to them, because listen, when the kingdom of God comes, it will be obvious. This is not something that's going to come subtly or secretly, or that you're going to wonder, is the kingdom of God here or not? He says, no, for behold, the kingdom of God will be in your face. I mean, that is it's actually a very good... uh, It's a very good paraphrase of what Jesus was saying. The kingdom of God will be in your face. It will be all around you. It will be undeniable. And he used other references to make the same point. In verse 22, he said this, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Don't go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Again, his point was, guys, when you look up and you see lightning, lightening up the whole sky, it's obvious, it's undeniable, there's lightning. Likewise, when the Son of Man comes, there's not going to be any question, is he here? Is the kingdom here or not? Has it come? Is it arriving? Is it about to arrive? He says, it will be obvious. And then in other uh, passages, he uses this sort of cryptic phrase where he says, Um, wherever the bodies are, there the vultures will gather. And people have often said, well, what what in the world is he saying there? Again, the point is the same. Jesus is saying, look, when you see a bunch of bodies on the ground, what does it mean? Does it mean the circus is in town? Does it mean that it's dinner time? No. When you see vultures 
flying around in the sky, it means one thing. There's some carcasses on the ground. And you can see it up in the sky. You can see it from a distance. It means one thing. There are dead bodies on the ground. It will be obvious. That was Jesus' point. He didn't say the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God was not some mystical spiritual reality. Yes, the Holy Spirit is in us. That is the deposit that he has given us, the down payment, guaranteeing that we'll be, we will be resurrected on the day of the Lord. But the kingdom of God is not some invisible, immaterial reality. It is a very real, tangible, biblical, Hebraic, earthly kingdom when in heaven and earth will become one. So the nature of the millennium, the nature of the kingdom is this. Jesus will rule the earth from Jerusalem, a very real piece of geography from Jerusalem. He will rule the earth. Life will continue. There will be real things. There will be jobs to do. There will be commerce. There will be all sorts of things. The resurrected will have eternal bodies, but many others will actually continue to live and be born in their natural bodies during those days. There will be individuals that will enter into the millennium that will not have been believers. And there are numerous verses that we could look at that speak of survivors entering into his kingdom, having children and living. But those that have the resurrected bodies are part of it, again, his kingdom leadership team. The Bible often refers to us as co-ruling with him as kings and priests. So again, the Lord is now raising up a kingdom leadership team. What is the message preached by every prophet, every apostle? It's the gospel of the kingdom. Going all the way back to the very beginning. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his Messiah. Trust in the finished work of the cross because the day of the Lord is coming. Whether it's Joel, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Enoch, the seventh from Adam. They were all pointing to the coming day of the Lord. Whether Jesus, whether Paul. The entire Bible is pointing to the day of the Lord. The literal, physical resurrection of the dead is coming. The day of judgment, where every man will give an account for his deeds and his actions, is coming. Justice, the day of justice is coming. Justice for the righteous and for the oppressed is coming. In this age, it often seems as though justice is not served. We are called to turn the other cheek and defer justice to the day of the Lord. But there is a day when it will make all the sense in the world, where everything will make sense. And for the oppressed that have groaned under their oppressors throughout history, on that day, they, the righteous oppressed, will be vindicated and justice will be executed and judgment will be carried out. The day of judgment against all unrighteousness is coming. The day of salvation for the remnant of Israel is coming. Again, one of the most consistent issues mentioned throughout the prophetic passages that speak of the day of the Lord is that the remnant, the survivors, the residue of my people, as it's often referred to, of Israel is coming. The judgment of all who oppress Israel is coming. The judgment, again we've touched on this, of unrighteous leadership throughout the earth is coming. And you know we can get an amen on that throughout the earth. The leaders throughout the earth that have set themselves in positions of authority, who are intended and called to be servant leaders, but instead who have used their uh, positions for their own self-exaltation, to build their own kingdoms, to build their own wealth, to glorify themselves, the Bible literally says they will be crushed. Psalm 110, in numerous passages, Jesus will judge them and replace the unrighteous leadership of the earth with righteous leadership. The restoration of righteous leadership globally is coming. So what is the mission? What is the mission of the church or the messianic community? 
It is to teach and preach the gospel of the kingdom. It is to live as witnesses of the coming kingdom in every sphere of our lives. To invite everyone to become participants and citizens in the coming kingdom. And this is essential. We are to live as sojourners, foreigners, aliens, and pilgrims here. Which means that this age, this world that we're in, this present system is not our home. We are passing through. We have a kingdom, but it is not now. The problem with kingdom now theology, dominionism, post-millennialism, amillennialism, that holds that the kingdom is now and that this is all there is, that it's impossible to truly embrace a pilgrim identity. Within that construct, if the kingdom is now, how can you say that you're just passing through unless you say, well, I'm just passing through until I go to heaven forever? Again, a Greek philosophical false worldview. We are to eagerly await and prepare for the coming kingdom and the redemption of all creation. When Jesus comes, he will establish his kingdom on the foundations of righteousness that have been established now. So it is not an abandonment eschatology. We are working to establish righteousness now so that that, those things will be built upon, but ultimately aware of the fact that we are aliens and, and foreigners here. We are to exemplify the righteousness of the coming kingdom with our lives. And again, we touched on this earlier. We are to fight for justice with regard to the oppressed, the forgotten, the rejected, the abandoned, the defenseless, the orphan, the widow. Why? We are to do this as a demonstration of the nature of the kingdom that is coming. We are to pray for the sick so as to demonstrate, to give a foretaste of the full healing that will be freely available in the coming kingdom. And then, if so honored, and this is essential, if we are individuals that are moving toward uh, giving ourselves to reaching out to the Islamic community, then we need to recognize that if we are so honored, we are called, as followers of Jesus, to embrace martyrdom. Martyrdom is the ultimate, quintessential expression of bearing witness to the coming resurrection of the body and the kingdom of the Messiah. Again, in Greek, A martyr is simply witness. The word martyr just simply means a witness. Now, uh, you know, obviously I'm in the United States right now. The American gospel and largely the Western gospel is very much the health and wealth gospel. We have absolutely, as a church, lost the first century theology of martyrdom. And largely because of bad eschatology, largely because of preaching a false gospel, we have lost that New Testament theology of martyrdom. And again, in the context of premillennialism, martyrdom is the ultimate example of success. And in fact, the mark of success of any, uh, of any church that is truly giving itself to discipleship is the measure to which it is producing righteous, loving martyrs. And that has always been the biblical standard. Those that are laying down their lives, either in death or in life, embracing the cross, having in themselves the attitude of Christ, even to the point of hating their own life in order to bear witness to the reality of the kingdom of, the kingdom of Christ that's to come. We are not afraid of dying. We are not afraid of temporarily losing this body because we believe fully in the physical resurrection of this body. The church, as I said, needs to reclaim and return to the New Testament apostolic theology of martyrdom. <clears throat> I have a uh, friend that was in my home group that meets at our home who recently uh, went on a short-term missions trip to uh, India. 
And when he got there, his name is uh, Daniel. There was an Indian man that walked right up to him immediately. As soon as he walked into the church, he got in his face and he said, You're from America. And Daniel said, Yes. And he said, American Christianity lied to me. He already had tears in his eyes. And uh, my friend said, you know, okay, I don't disagree with you, but go ahead. And he said, American televangelists, American Christian TV told me, he named names. He said, they told me that if I converted to Christianity, I would be healed, I would be healthy, I would be blessed, I would be wealthy, and that life would go good for me. They taught me this message on TV consistently, and I believed it, and I converted to Christianity, and they slaughtered my family. They killed my wife, and they killed my children. And he's he's saying this with tears in his eyes, looking at, at my friend Daniel, and he didn't know what to say, and he said, but listen, he said, I turned to the scriptures, and I discovered the true faith, and I forgive you Americans for preaching a faith without the cross. I forgive you for preaching a false gospel. If we are to be individuals that desire to preach a true gospel, to reach the Islamic world, we have to abandon the American gospel, the health and wealth gospel. We have to return to the first century gospel that was embraced by Jesus and the apostles and all the prophets because the American gospel is it's being spread throughout the world. We're beaming it everywhere. And the oppressed of the earth, the persecuted of the earth, don't resonate with it one bit. I want to read Matthew verse, chapter 10, verse 16. This is, if we're to be missionaries to the Islamic world, this is a verse that we should all memorize. Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher nor is a servant above his master. In other words, guys, if they did these things to me, don't think that you are going to be exempt. He says, it's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. Verse 28, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and and body in hell. Again, if we are to go to the Islamic world, if we are to be individuals that are thrusting ourselves as arrows into the heart of the Islamic world, we should memorize this verse and to take it into deep consideration. For post-millennialists and amillennialists, martyrdom is essentially a temporary loss. You know, we lost this battle, but we know eventually we win the war. But there's no real context philosophically to understand martyrdom. It's a loss. It is not a victory. For New Testament premillennialism, martyrdom is the greatest victory imaginable. It is the ultimate expression of bearing witness to the resurrection of the body and the good news of the kingdom to come. For the post and amillennialists, because the kingdom of God is now, it is impossible, as I said earlier, to maintain a genuine pilgrim identity. You know, just passing through. Whereas with the premillennialist, we are living in a foreign kingdom. We are awaiting another kingdom, a better kingdom. And just lastly, I want to touch on the subject of martyrdom in Islam. Uh, If we are to recover a New Testament theology of martyrdom, then Islam and that New Testament theology of martyrdom go together like hand in glove. The Bible calls all faithful believers to bear witness even unto death. And then you have this, this meat grinder, 
if you will, called Islam, which often leads its adherents to kill Christians. Again, Islam and a New Testament theology of martyrdom go together like hand in glove. And if we are to enter into that world, we need to consider and carefully weigh our decision and make sure that we are aware of what we are getting ourselves into. And if we are not ready to give our lives, literally even our families, as martyrs, then we may want to reconsider being a missionary to the Islamic world. Jesus commanded us to carefully consider these things, and he commanded his followers not to love their lives, even unto death. Jesus commanded us to have that attitude. Jesus said, in fact, this is John 16, verse 2, a time is coming when those who kill you will believe that they are offering God a service. These individuals will have a system of theology which will lead them to literally believe that when they kill people, they are actually offering God a service. And then it says this, they do these things because they do not know the Father and they do not know me. They do not know the Father, they do not know the Son. There is no God other than Allah, not Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and Muhammad is the final messenger, not Jesus. They deny the Father, they deny the Son. We're going to touch on that in some further sessions. Luke 14, 26-27, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In conclusion, I just want to wrap up by saying that understanding and adhering to a Hebrew biblical worldview will lead one to embrace premillennial, premillennialist uh, eschatology. If we adhere to a Hebraic as opposed to a Greek philosophical worldview, we will be premillennialists. Premillennialism provides us with a theology of missions as well as a theology of martyrdom. It is a context under which we are to proclaim the coming kingdom and maintain that alien, that stranger identity here and now. Amen.